live for episode 37 of the First Strike Podcast, brought to you by the good folks at FaceToFaceGames.com, the number one place to get your Magic the Gathering singles. We are the first episode. This is the first episode right after Pro Tour Hour of Devastation. Congratulations to PV for finishing first. And of course, a shout out to Sam Party who finished second part of Team Face-to-Face Games with Black Green Constrictor. Um, Brian, since you've been doing a lot of Constructed, uh, did, did the metagame, uh, standard metagame, shape up like you thought it would? I guess in, I in guess some in sense, some yes. Sense. But the big issue is that neither myself nor I don't believe anyone else predicted that Mono Red would be such a huge percentage of metagame. Like, I think... A conservative estimate was probably around like 15% of the metagame. And if you were like out on a limb, you might have gone as far as 20% of the metagame. But I think it was like 28%. And I have a hard time believing that anyone predicted those kind of numbers uh, for Mono Red. Because then the entire shape of the, the tournament changes when you get to that point. And I know that, you know, on the game last week, Jerry and I had discussed the prevalence of Mono Red on Moto and, and talking about, you know, how... At least in the past, a lot of big teams are kind of reluctant to play that style of deck, right? Like, there's this kind of, I don't know, like an unspoken rule, unspoken rule against like pro players playing mono red decks. This is obviously a very different kind of mono red deck than what we've seen in the past. Uh, if you watched the finals, you saw just how uh, intense and skill intensive the games were, um, and um, I think that continued throughout the entire tournament. And you saw how, you know, some of the best players obviously rose to the top eight. So uh, this is a little bit different of a mono-red deck, but still, I, I think the kind of percentages we saw at this event were just very unexpected. Um, as far as the non-mono-red decks, I mean, the field was very open to begin with. It obviously narrowed down because mono-red was so dominant. It just kind of cast out all the pretenders one by one. And if there's, you know, one deck that you don't want to take your kind of rickety brew up against, it's certainly mono-red because it'll punish you real fast. And uh, these decks were very efficient at doing that. So. Uh, Rob, did, did it go as you expected? Did you expect a decent percentage of Monored heading into the PT? Yeah, I, it's definitely more exaggerated than I thought it was going to be, but I think ever since Rabble Master was printed, the stigma around playing Monored at the PT has gone to the wayside. <laughs> that card uh, allowed that archetype to be played by everyone now, so I'm not too surprised that a lot of people decided to bring it. I do think it was the best deck for the event. I mean, Right before the PT, so I've been testing for the mocks a bit, and it, it's the deck I've spent the most time tinkering with because I just couldn't figure out how to beat it and the other nonsense that's going on uh, in standard at the same time. And I've I've tried a little bit <laughs> to to no success, um, but yeah, it just seems like reasonably well positioned against all of the other random decks, and then it just has like four braid if it wants it to be able to like beat up on Blue White Monument and the other God Pharaoh's Gift-type decks. So, like, those, those kind of decks are, like, a non-starter against it as well. And it has a good clock. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess the, the cards just kind of line up for it. Hazard is just really well positioned. It was very, very well positioned for the, for the tournament, for sure. So, uh, it makes sense. I didn't think it was going to be almost 30% of the event, but I'm not surprised that it is the best-performing deck at the event. Um, I don't. I don't know if like Owen was uh, trolling when he said that when he tweeted, but 
He tweeted, has anyone noticed that if someone casts Hazard, they win immediately? It took me five games to crack that Da Vinci code and put four in my deck. <laughs> so, uh, but that card, just watching the coverage, I thought it performed uh, an amazing job for the people that were piloting it. Uh, Brian, was there m- m- much difference between the different red decks at the top or just like a few cards different? Yeah, I, I think there were. Like on their face, they have the same core. So if you didn't really dive into it too deeply. They would seem like they were super similar. Um, but there were little tweaks, little differences. Uh, land counts were all over the place. I think they ranged from Sam at 21 to PV at 24. Uh, 24 was correct. I, I'm pretty comfortable saying that. I, I think you just like need more lands in this archetype because it doesn't play like old mono red. Like It's so different. You have so much to do with your mana. You have you know, Ramanap Ruins activations and Hazard activations and you know, you're buying back your Kenras for six mana, and it's very difficult to get flooded with the deck. Um, and, you know, there were some other small card choice differences. Like, I know Sam's List had Cartouche of Zeal. Um, and I think that... I think that the deck that won was the best-built deck. I think PV was a little bit further ahead. I, I think he was probably a little bit better positioned in the mirror. Um, and... You know, it's interesting when things kind of shake out the correct way, I guess you would say. I mean, I don't know. That's a, that's a little silly to say. But, I mean, he had, he had Chandra Main, which was a huge edge in the mirror matches. Um, he only had three copies of Hazaret, but if I play this deck, I would play four. I agree with Owen 100%. I mean, you only have to watch the games to be like, oh, this is the card that matters more than anything else. Um, I, I thought if there's one beef I have with PV's list, and I don't even know if it's a beef because I see... I see the merits of, of both plans, but I really like the look of uh, Soul Scar Mage being able to kind of trim down the Hazarets a little bit um, with its you know secondary ability where it does damage as minus one minus one counters. Um, I think I would be interested in having that over the Messenger going forward, um, but it does seem like the Messenger versions did a little bit better on the whole than the uh, Soul Scar versions. So, I don't know. Maybe I'm just wrong on that. Maybe I'd have to play some more games. I don't think anyone went, like, the four full um, Soul Scar. Oh, that's not tr- true. Uh, Yam, Yam Wing Chun had the, the four full Soul Scar and no Messengers. Um, so, I don't know. I, to me, that would be the first place to start because I, you need play for the mirror. And, uh, you know, I think PV got it in the main deck with, with Chandra and having 24 lands. I think that really advantaged him in the mirror. And that's why he ultimately won the tournament. Yeah, PV's like half pre-boarded for the mirror. So I think if anyone thought that this deck was going to be good and well-represented, it was uh, Team CFB Ice and I, I guess face-to-face. I mean, when you hear Sigris talk about their deck choices, it seemed like they came to the conclusion that this deck was good and that green-black was okay. And so some people played green-black and a lot of people played mono-red. But his choices are... Definitely correct if you think there's going to be a lot of mono-red, right? He just like cuts all the sorcery speed garbage and then just like loads up on annoying threats um and, and make sure that he can hit his land drop so uh, I, I agree with brian i think that his is the best version and he's also like already at 24 lands right a lot of people have that 23rd 24th land in their board so he just he seems like he came prepared ready to battle <laughs> but uh i think that i kind of disagree with brian a little bit i, I so i played soul scar mage a bit and i like just don't like the card i especially don't like it in PV's build. If you're going to go eight spells main deck and that's it, I'm not a big fan of it because uh, it doesn't have haste. And it's almost always a one, two for one. And its ability isn't 
super relevant. Um, so I definitely don't get me wrong. Village Messenger is a bad card, but it's better, <laughs> and it also punishes people for like playing Tapland and uh, when you're on the play or something like that, or Tapland to Tapland when you're on the draw. Uh, it gets it gets pretty annoying if you you get to flip it right away. It's funny. It could be one of those situations where like. You, you obviously can see the upside of Soul Scar Mage. Like it's very clear, like the play yes. pattern that it influences. But by including Soul Scar Mage in your deck, maybe now you're you know two points of damage behind where you would have been previously, and that actually closes off a whole other range of strategies that you would use to make Hazard actually irrelevant in the games. So like by playing Soul Scar, you actually turn on their Hazard. So now you need an answer. Whereas if you just had Messenger, you would have killed them, and it doesn't even matter. Right, yeah, and I think that extra, like, maybe one to two points of damage that Messenger's going to do is relevant when you're playing cards like Ramunap Ruins and a bunch of your creatures can't block. It's pretty easy for the deck to do, like, 15 damage. That's almost a given. It's that last five that are sometimes a struggle while your opponent's trying to stabilize. Yeah, I could see that being the case. It's interesting. Um, I I would love to hear the opinions, because obviously, like, the people, the teams that play this deck went much further down this rabbit hole than I have because I, you know, I've spent most of my time on other archetypes. And if I was, don't get me wrong, if I was qualified for this Pro Tour, I would have played a ton of games with Mono Red to totally understand it. Um, but it's interesting. It would be interesting to hear their perspective that if they knew the meta was thirty percent Mono Red, would they have played Soul Scar Mage in that case? Could be the answer is no. I, I don't know, but uh, it, it's interesting how it lines up with Hazaret, which was unquestionably the key card in the matchup. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I really like Pia as well. I think that was sick tech. That'll probably be a mainstay going forward. Uh, Rob, heading into the finals, uh, did you expect Green Black to be a dog, a favorite of coin flip? But you, when you watch Sam Pardee go through the deck tech, he, he mentioned a lot of key choices that he made for his deck were because he was aware, his team was aware that Mono Red was going to be a presence, has the two Kalidas in the main, uh, Walking Ballista being well-positioned against all the X-1s in the Mono Red. How did you think that matchup was going to play out? So I'm surprised um, that given he thought that Mono Red was going to be very popular, that he went with like a mini Delirium package that's running Grim Flare, because you're not actually turning Grim Flare on that quickly. So it seems, I, I feel like Gifted Aetherborn, or like if you think the tournament's going to be a lot of mono red, I think there are better two drops, like Sylvan Advocate or just like almost anything is probably better than, than Grim Flare in that spot. But if you just like ignore the fact that Grim Flare's in the deck, the rest of the cards are definitely fine. Like I think any game where he goes uh, Constrictor into like unanswered Ballista is like super annoying for mono red to, to come back with that, right? Because you're kind of like almost three for one of them. Or if it goes like, constrictor into rishkar uh into into something else silly like that's also a very uh good start that they typically can't uh deal with but any game that he doesn't open up on constrictor i think he's pretty far behind um so i i would say that he's not favored given that he you know is in all likelihood had to battle through three model red decks (laughs) to to be the champion um it's just like unlikely that your deck is that good uh, that you'll be able to just kind of like get through a three match set uh, with a deck that just punishes any misstep you make. I was surprised he made it to the finals, to be honest, but he definitely played uh, pretty tight. And his list is is not garbage, so <laughs> it seems okay. Uh, Brian, where, where do you see black green being uh, positioned versus mono red moving forward? 
Yeah, I think it's possible to build it in a way that's advantaged. I mean, he's playing Grim Flayer because you can't just build entirely around Mono Red, right? Like, he has a day one to get through. So if he just slanted his entire deck towards Mono Red, he would have a very difficult time. And he's certainly making concessions in other places. Um, but I think going forward, I like the idea of Advocate. That sounds pretty good to me, which is a card that I haven't been high on for a while. But three toughness is really good against the red deck. Um, so I, I, I like the sound of Advocate right now. I could certainly see playing that over Grim Flayer. Um, but yeah, on the whole, I mean, it's like Green Black isn't an archetype I have a lot of love for. I think it's very draw dependent. It's not something I like to play, but Sam has played the deck for actual months now. And I, I do think that um, it is a slight favorite against Mono Red. But the thing about Mono Red is it's hard to be more than a slight favorite because the second you have one too many tapped lands or, you God forbid, you miss a land drop, you just lost the game anyway, whether your deck is favorite against them or not. Um, so it's hard for any deck to really move to like, you know, they're not pushing 60%. Maybe like Mono White Life game is like 60%. Maybe. I don't even know if I would say that because, like I said, any misstep, any, anything that goes wrong for your deck, the Red Deck is going to punish you every time. Um, so I, I do believe there's definitely some 55% decks out there. And I would say this is like a 53% favorite against Mono Red, maybe. Um, but yeah, certainly not prohibitive and, and certainly within the realm of possibility that he loses a match. And he did in the finals. So. Hmm. And, and like right after the PT, like I, there's a RPTQ coming up for me in two weeks with an LCQ uh, the day before. I was messaging you, Brian, about like, should I just play Mono Red? It took over. Jerry thought Mono Red was the best. He shipped the list to all his patrons before the PT, what he was going to play, and you know, perform PB crushed it. It looks great. And then you tell me, well, you know, the, the format has already evolved very quickly, and an online PTQ happened where zombies took over, and there were some names that I recognized in that top eight, some people that are known in the Magic community. So what, were you surprised by this uh, zombies uh, overtake, uh, Brian? Only by how quickly it happened, because the meta literally changed on the day of the pro tour, the same 24 hour span in which the meta was set as Monterey as the dominant deck. The players of the Moto PTQ had moved on past that point and gotten to the next level. And the entire tournament was stacked against mono red and like the highest finishing mono red list, I think was like 11th or 12th or something like that. And playing in that tournament, you could totally see why I played, I played zombies with Kalidus in the main. I lost to three mirrors and that, that was the story of my tournament. Like, it was unquestionably a Zombies tournament. Uh, it, it was won by Zombies. And then, exploiting the fact that now the metagame is just Mono Red and Zombies, well, the ramp decks started to creep up to the top. And uh, there, were, there were two green-red ramp decks in the top eight. And that doesn't surprise me at all, because if that's the metagame you're expecting, especially with the way ramp decks are being built right now, they've moved away from kind of the mid-range style that I embraced for a long time. And they're, they're more pure in their approach. They're playing things like uh, Jihadi Offshoot main. So they're gaining a ton of life. Um, you know, Todd continues to not play Deserts in his list, which is something I very strongly disagree with. But he's saving life. And I, I see why he's doing that. I just think that you gain more life by getting two zombies off your hour of promise than you lose by taking damage throughout the game. Um, but, you know, obviously that's something that there's room for disagreement on. Um, but you're... You're, you're seeing the next step right now. Like, it took one day for the metagame to evolve. And, you know, someone in the nation asked, if you were preparing for a real-life tournament, are you preparing against the 
uh, Pro Tour metagame or you're preparing against the PTQ metagame? Uh, the answer is both, unfortunately. Um, because, you know, players are on different levels. Uh, the more savvy players of a Moto PTQ, and let me tell you something, Moto PTQs are tough. I played one a couple weeks ago. I, I played three people with Pro Tour top eights over the course of my Moto PTQ. Like, <laughs> the players are tough. They're really difficult tournaments, and they're savvy players, and that's one of the reasons things evolve so quickly for this PTQ. Um, but you can't expect that everyone at, say, GP Minneapolis, which is coming up this weekend, is going to be on the same level. There's certainly some people who are going to look at the Pro Tour list, and that's how they're going to decide. So they're going to show up with Mono Red. Um, thankfully, there's some overlap in strategies that beat both Mono Red and Zombies. You kind of know what you're lining up against, um, and you can do something very mid-rangey, like, you know, Black Red kind of has some points against both. Um, Ramp has points against both, and those are both some fine avenues to explore. Um, and then, you know, when, when those decks start showing up on mass and are built super slanted against zombies and mono red, well, then we're going to be able to start talking about Mardu or blue red control. What we're seeing is a cyclical format, and this is the way standard is supposed to work. And we've kind of forgotten about it. It's been so long, um, but things are going to cycle through. There's going to be a new best deck every week. And this is why I love standard. This is, this is the type of magic I love to play. I love thinking about it. Love making the correct decisions. I was, I was happy I made the correct decisions for this PTQ, even if I just lost mirrors all day. I should have had tech for the mirror. That would have been like the next, next level. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it, it's good to see Magic back in a healthy place again. I think there were some people who were upset about the Pro Tour metagame. I know Finkel had like a negative tweet that he put out where he was like, just every standard's been terrible. I thought that was a little weird. I, I don't think like the standard is terrible. I think there was a, a good a bunch of teams that made a very good conclusion for this Pro Tour and showed up with the same deck uh, because the data merited it. Um, but going forward, knowing that that's the case, there's certainly ways for us to adapt, and I think you will see adaptation. And uh, Mono Red will always be there. It's not going away. It's, you always have to think of it from this point forward. It's a proven deck, and it's a great deck list, and it's a special kind of Mono Red. But there is room for the format to evolve past that. Yeah, it's just... Finkel's comment was like every standard format for the last few years has been worse than the previous iteration or some something to that effect. He's mostly right, but I just don't feel that way this one time. Like otherwise, no, no, I have agreed. It's not correct now. It's been correct for the last twelve months, but this standard is is good. I was surprised that like um, all these teamer value decks were like nowhere to be found. Essentially, they just like had not figured it out. I guess, um, but I wonder like if. Like, Ruler Virtuoso just seems so good against uh, Mono Red. So I don't know if it... Maybe it has a place to come back uh, a little bit as well. Maybe, like, very reminiscent of just, like, Teamer Energy or something like that. But um, I guess one small note on this PTQ. Someone literally just ran back Zampardi's list and went Edo. So this deck list is probably just quite a bit better than I'm giving it credit for. <laughs> so uh, it, it seems just fine. but. Uh, yeah, I mean, these, you can look at these zombie decks. They look just stacked and ready to battle against uh, what Mono Red has to offer. So I'm curious to see how the, the format evolves again this week for the mocks um, and where it kind of ends up. I know that uh, Edgar and I have been testing uh, Black Red, and we're kind of, like, discussing it, and we both came to the same conclusion. It's like, I think Black Red has the tools to beat up on Green Black, Mono Black, and Mono Red, which is, like, a reasonable place to be because I think a lot of people will be on those three decks going into the mocks, right? 
So we're talking about deck lists and he's like, I'm going to try this configuration. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this configuration. We'll compare notes in a day or two. So what does he do in like four hours? He just goes in four, five hosts a daily. And then the deck list gets immediately posted. <laughs> I was like, thanks man. So the deck's good, right? Now everyone knows. Cool. Well, now we have to go to the next level. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I think black red uh, is well positioned and that's likely going to cause another shift. Like uh, like you said, Ramp and Ulamog uh, is very good against uh, decks that are just packed with a few efficient creatures that are good against creature decks uh, and a bunch of removal. So it'll be nice. It'll be nice to have a rotating standard. Maybe what? we won't be bitching at Watsi all summer long. We'll see. We'll try. <laughs> Black Red is interesting, too, for the fact that it can kind of do... Depending on how you build it, it can be favored against whatever you want it to be favored against. It has it a lot be, of tools. Yeah, it has it a lot. It can be favored tools. against everything. Like you, you have to build it exactly correctly for the metagame you face that week. Um, but I do think there are configurations of black red that can be advantage in whatever matchup you want it to be advantage against. It's, it's very easy to load up on like doom falls and transgresses and kind of beat up on the ramp decks, and then it's very easy to load up on Kalidus and fatal push and magma sprays and beat up on the small creature aggro decks. You just have to think about exactly what build you. Um, are going to to use and this is I know I had talked with people in the nation about they were talking about sideboarding how can they improve on sideboarding this deck is a perfect candidate for doing the elephant build and building out your ideal deck list against each of these theoretical decks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then finding some way within your 75 to get in the pieces um, if, you, if you don't know elephanting you can you can google it I know Zvi wrote uh, a few articles about it in the past so google like Zvi Moschwitz and Elephant Build, and, and you'll see exactly what it is. But it basically involves building a lot of different theoretical 60-card lists for the in, against the entire field, and then seeing what cards are present across your 60-card list. Um, and then making that your 75 in some configuration, or as close as you can get to that point, your 75 in some configuration. And the Black Red deck is actually a perfect candidate for that. So. Hmm. Man. Um, Brian, you talked about how this is co- both of you talk about how it's co- constantly evolving, and I think we're getting people from not only the nation but myself that have a tournament like two weeks down the road. So, Brian, how would you suggest we we prepare for that? Do we wait for? Do we just like jam some games and then decide based on results from Minneapolis where people might be heading? Yeah, you need to be up to the minute, dude. Everything happens so quickly now, and I talked about this previously. I had been tested before the first PTQ. I had been testing ramp nonstop. I had exactly where I wanted it. I'm like, I beat absolutely everything in the metagame. And then I stopped playing, I think, on... I didn't play the Thursday and Friday before the Saturday PTQ. In that time, Mono Red became the most popular deck on Moto. I didn't face it one time before that point. But that was like the day it broke out. And then it was absolutely everywhere. So two days, the entire metagame evolved. And my deck was outdated for that tournament. So you, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. The, the speed at which things are evolving right now is kind of unprecedented. And I, I keep thinking, why? Maybe it's the lack of deck lists. Like, this is not something that I am, I've, I've been on board with, but the, the pace of this format and its evolution seems incredibly fast to me. And maybe it's just that I'm a little bit more plugged in right now than I have been over the past you know, year or so. Or maybe it's just that the format's much better than it's been over the past year or so, and that there is a lot more room for evolution. But even if I go back to other healthy formats, I don't remember things moving this quickly. Like, it just seems like we're moving to the next level almost on a day-to-day basis. Um, 
So my advice, if you have a big tournament coming coming up, stay plugged in. Don't miss anything. Don't miss a day of moto results. And you also just need to be in the queues because you're not getting metagame percentages anymore. So the only way you would know that mono red was like the dominant force leading up to this pro tour is if you were in the queues every day and, and you were facing it. I mean, I said that I was facing it about 60% of the time for the pro tour. I thought it was 60% of my matchups in moto leagues, which is crazy. Um, but that's a very good indicator that like, okay, everyone is checking out the stack and is into it for the most part. Um, so you just have to be there and in the queues, uh, that's my advice. Keep playing magic, play more magic. I think there's, there's less data than there's ever been before. And it's demanding more play experience on our part. And it's a very new situation and we're still just kind of coming to grasp with it right now. Do you think that the metagames may be evolving quickly? Like no- like irrespective of, of how much data is or isn't present, it's just like the linearity of the decks is very high. So if you want to target the, like once a deck has a target on it, it's like not too complicated to figure out where to go to beat it or how to modify your deck to, to next level where, where that deck is. Cause you have like hyper synergy zombies, hyper synergy red, uh, the green black decks are typically hyper synergy around constrictor. Um, and then you have like ramp, <laughs> which is also a very synergy based deck. And then if you want to include te- teamer uh, energy, that's also a very synergy based deck. And then you've got like white blue monument, which is, you know, has some key pieces, but it's just like whether or not a braid is good or, or not. Right. Like, so if those decks are good, a braid's like really good and a braid's already just fine. So I feel like a braid just being a four everywhere kind of pushes both of those blue white decks like right out of the format, including anything that would want to run spell queller. <laughs> so I feel like uh, there's nothing that's so overly oppressive that you can't figure out where to go next, which is was a problem in previous iterations of standard, where it's like I don't really like I remember testing for New Jersey. I was playing Mardu in a field of essentially just Mardu in four-color Sahili, and I was like, I don't know how I can change anything to improve my matchup in in any match. The mirror or or four-color, it's just like, <laughs> I feel like we're at steady state, right? I don't think that's true for this format. I think that uh, the targets are easier to hit, maybe. I think that's a good observation. I, th- I think everything's been so mid-rangey for so long that it, yeah. it's weird that we're pushing the other sides of the spectrum. And we have like kind of like faux combo. Like I think w- what passes for combo nowadays is kind of like Monument and God Pharaoh's Gift type decks. Like that's as close as we're going to get to combo um, in, in this kind of modern era. And then Ben in the chat makes a really good point too. Like people just want to play the standard. That's a huge difference too. Like when every standard, standard format was miserable and no one was incentivized to work on it just because like the actual process of playing standard was fairly abysmal. Yeah, there's going to be less innovation. People aren't as into to doing their thing. And I mean, look, the first like the first four weeks I spent with this format was the most fun I've had with Magic in a long time. It was just really good. There were a billion decks. Everything was really interesting. And that made me want to play more. And yeah, even I iterated more. I, I changed my ramp list on a daily basis and was was evolving things and making new sideboard plans. And, you know, so it, it's easy to see how much more quickly my own deck list evolved. So it makes sense that everyone else was going through the same process as well, just because they were playing, playing standard and enjoying it, which is something that's been absent for a long time. Um, it, it, I, I was so shocked to see John's comments because I don't think he's an overly negative person either. Like he certainly has his, his share of like 
you know, jaded old pro who's been around forever, but I don't think he tends to fall on the complainy side of things all that often. Did they play Pummeler? Did he play Pummeler? He played Mono Red. Oh, he played Mono Red. That's yeah. probably why he wasn't happy with the format. Like, I guess so. This yeah. format's so stupid. The best choice for me was Mono Red. And it also, must be, it must fairness, be miserable. <laughs> in fairness, he analyzes, like, he only plays the Pro Tour, right? So, like, that's what yeah. matters to him about a format. He's not thinking about where it's going to. I mean, he may play another GP or two, but on the whole, he's not thinking about where the format goes from week to week. Um, and I think it will change from week to week, and I think things will be good here. So. Yeah, I agree. So I think, KYT, you, you said that someone asked about what to play, or you, you're interested in knowing what to play in the next two weeks. So it looks like Mono Red was good for the PT, and now decks with Kalidus are good against Mono Red. We've already gone through that iteration. So the next iteration is what, are, what decks are good against Kalidus decks. So I feel like there's a control deck that's going to emerge. Uh, over this weekend in the mocks, which is hopefully going to be black red, piloted by myself or Edgar, <laughs> and then and then you have to figure out what is good against decks with Kalidus, mono red, and control decks, which is probably ramp. So if you're playing in a tournament after the mocks this weekend, I would probably play some version of ramp. I feel like it'll be well enough positioned. And then once ramp is good, we're back to the aggro plan again. <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm excited if I get to play Hour of Promise because that's the card I was most excited about prior to the set's release, and then it being the play map for for a GP and it was just a sweet sweet card. And seeing um, Todd top eight with it is is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, so lots of thoughts, and uh, hoping Rob takes down the uh, the tournament, the mocks uh, this weekend. Uh, moving on to still on the Pro Tour. Lots of discussion. It's just a fun. What I first thought about this show, First Strike, obviously, it was modeled after First Take, a sports show that really always debates who's the go in any sport. And uh, with PV's latest finish with another win, PT win, and his 12th PT top eight, it really puts him in uh, the discussion of how far does he have to go to be the best player of all time, or if he's there already. Um, Lots of opinions on Twitter from different people. Even Rietzel says now there's just like one tier, I believe, uh, that is just PV Kai and Finkel are in their own tier, and Nasif is, is on the second tier at this point. I think I read that. I'll double-check once I uh, pass it to Brian. But Brian, where, where do you put PV? I think everyone on this cast had PV basically third already. So after this win, where does this place him? Yeah, still third. Um, but I like the idea that he's now in that same tier. Like the greats are John, Kai, and PV. I, I think that's a reasonable place to go with this. Um, I believe he will pass Kai at some point. I mean, Kai's dedication to the game just isn't there right now. But he's still a ways away from that. Like, does Kai have eight or nine wins? He has a preposterous number of wins. And, and that's, not, that's not top eights, that, that's wins. Um, which just dwarfs everyone else on the planet. And I don't, I don't care about the era. Winning that many Pro Tours is absolutely ludicrous. And PV has more work to do before he catches them. But it's starting to look like, whereas a few years ago, people would have said, nobody will ever catch Kai and John. It was a different era. And no one can ever be that good again. Um, I think that now it's starting to look more like an inevitability that PV eventually eclipses Kai in that discussion. Um, I'm not there yet. Um, but I, I see it coming. And then as far as being just the best all time, 
I, I, that depends what John wants to do, right? Because he's uh, he still plays at such an insane level. It's totally plausible that you know he'll win three or four more Pro Tours very easily in the next ten years. I, that doesn't seem like a stretch to me at all. So, I. I, I think it's too early to tell if he ultimately ends up the greatest of all time. Maybe maybe he just goes on an insane streak right now and wins the next two or three pro tours, and then it's like unquestionably he's the greatest of all time. That seems a little implausible, but you never know what's going to happen. And certainly, all I'm willing to say after this is that the tiers have changed. I, I really like that definition um, and, and that analysis of the situation. And unquestionably, there's the three greatest of all time, not just the two greatest of all time now. And, and PV is in that list. Right. According to my quick uh, Google search, Kai has seven wins, but 10 top eights and seven GP wins along with 15 GP top eights. Uh, Rob, what are your thoughts? Yeah, Kai's definitely a closer, right? Like when he gets in the top eight, he very rarely loses. He's like a 50%, like once you get there, just crush people <laughs> percentage, which is uh, just ludicrously high. Um, PV's nowhere close to that. But I think. Yeah, he's definitely clearly in the top three. I think when we started this podcast, we were debating whether or not PV was truly considered better than Nassif, right? And I think it's like, it's abundantly clear. Like, it's objectively clear now that he's uh, definitely um, uh, superseded Nassif in his his abilities. Um, And I, I feel that, you know, over the next 10 to 15 years, will be probably talking about PV being the best player ever. I think that if you put his skill level uh, back in the early, late, late 90s, early 2000s, I feel like he could accomplish what Kai and John accomplished. Um, he's just insane. He's kind of, he's almost accomplishing that now, and Magic is way, way harder <laughs> than it was back then. And I know lots of people like to say, like, oh, you know, there were, like, so many great players. It's just like, yeah, but the average player is just, like, much better now, right? So it's like, I feel like it was maybe more difficult to win a top eight previously, but it was probably easier to get there. Whereas, like, now top eighting is, like, Every round at a PT, you're playing someone that knows what's going on for the most part. So, um, yeah, I'm, like, totally in camp PV. I I, I think that when it's all said and done, he will be sitting at the top, and I would not be surprised about it. His play is just, like, so crisp. It's insane. (laughs) I still remember, like, visions of of him uh, being a boss uh, with fairies, and there's a lot of people that are – using the stats thing and then saying, of course, comparing eras and how there were less players at the GPs, etc. Um, so it, it makes for a very interesting uh, conversation. Of course, PB's career is not done. Uh, another thing I think is interesting is I think a few years ago, maybe even two, like it feels short, where on Twitter, I think it was reading PB, like he had a bad year and he was uh, struggling to even, I think he was just silver at some point. Like, and then he got the Hall of Fame and he's able to uh, perform at the PTs, but but there was a point where he had a really bad year and it looked like he had dropped off and was no longer considered, I remember this part, no longer considered one of the top players in the world. I, I do think that um, I don't know where you guys put people like you know Owen or Yuya, people that are universally considered the best active player uh, at different points of the last five years but don't have the resume to even be close to like the goat at all, the goatless at all at this point. 
Like, we're are we not are we giving too much credit to to PD results? Are we are these guys not actually two of the best players right now and have been for the last five years, Brian? You can be. I mean, I think they're unquestionably two of the best players right now, but that's very far from being the best of all time. And yeah, they're, they're just not on that level. I mean, I don't think there's really anything else to say. They, they don't have the kind of results to be in that discussion. Um, are they capable of producing those kind of results? Sure. I could see a world where, you know, they, they go on a hot streak. They're both very young. I mean, they're much younger than I am. So like, if I want to believe in my own viability as a human, I have to kind of buy into their own viability. Um, but yeah, it, it, they're not there yet. I don't think there's any kind of realistic argument to say that they are. Um, maybe someday. That's all I can really say about that. They need to catch LSV first, right? Yeah, yeah, they always, yeah. <laughs> they're like halfway there. <laughs> uh, if that, um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. PV's range, I, I forgot to mention this. PV's range is just also so wide, like, he is not afraid to play what he feels is the best deck, even if a lot of pros would never catch themselves playing that deck. Like, I think he's played mono red twice at the PT to a top eight finish. I'm pretty sure he, he top eight when rabble rabble red broke onto the pro tour scene as well. I, th- so. I think range is dead. I think that's like a, an outdated term. Whereas people used to have range. I think like modern magic players don't, Good modern modern magic players don't ascribe to that concept anymore. Like certainly you'll meet guys. There's so many store. pros that still have it though. Like look at what uh Wafo Tapa brought. Like he was like, no, I'm playing control. I don't I don't care. I don't care if it's bad. I don't care if everyone thinks it's bad. I don't care if it's objectively bad. I'm bringing it. You're you're right. And he is a relic of an old age. Like not to say he's not good, he's still a great player. But he's a relic of that time when there were specialists and when people were like, I play control, I play this style. I don't think good magic players think like that anymore. I mean, look at the people, you know, on, say, Team Genesis or any of them mono red people. No, look at the people on Mutiny who played mono red. Do you think of Jerry and Sam as mono red people? No, absolutely not. But it's like the best deck. Do I think of myself as like aggro player? No, but if the best deck is aggro, I'm going to play it. Like, I don't, I don't really care. Like, it just doesn't matter to me anymore. And I think that defeating that kind of presupposition that we all held previously, it was a thing. You were supposed to identify who are you as a player? What is your range? What is your, you know, what is your ideal deck list? Does this matter to some extent? Yes, it does matter. Certainly some people are better suited to playing some kind of decks than others. But if you want to be a great magic player, you need to distance yourself from this idea and you need to be capable of playing anything. Because when the time comes that the data points to the fact that Mono red is 60% of the field. Do you want to be the guy going, well, I can't play mono red. No, you can't be successful like that. There's just no way. That's not any way to proceed as a professional magic player. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree that uh, people should have the ability to play whatever is best. And I think good players have developed that. I, I think you are seeing that on the pro tour, that there's much less of the, I have to play this style of deck or even much less of the, the, you know, previously there was a lack of willingness to take on a deck like Mono Red because you didn't get to assert your intellectual superiority as you were playing the game. So it wasn't, you know, a good enough deck. I think that's mostly gone now. I think probably there's some mid-range players that still hold on to that ideal or people who are, you know, kind of old school players like Waffle Tapa you mentioned, who is, he's always going to play control. It's not going to change. He's in the Hall of Fame. What does he care? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter at this point. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that this concept is one that uh, it would benefit burgeoning players to put this idea to rest. 
to just divorce yourself from the concept of that you're supposed to have a, a range and a style of deck you play and just become good at magic. Like there's this thing, this is, this is something again, that's, I think it's faded to some extent, partially because the format's faded, but partially because people have distanced themselves from the ideas. There's the idea of the legacy specialist, the person who is a legacy mastermind and they were sick at legacy. And there's this whole like, myth that these people were some kind of legacy gods no they just play more legacy than everyone else good magic players are able to step in and play legacy usually better than these legacy specialists were able to and that's because it's about it's about being good at magic generally specializing it's not benefiting you like you're just capping yourself in what you're learning in what you're experiencing there's no way that if you want to be a great legacy player you don't benefit from expanding your horizons and playing different formats. And in the same way, if you want to be a great control player, you benefit from playing the aggro side of things once in a while and understanding exactly where the pressure points are. As long as you can kind of extrapolate the data and, and put it onto the other side of things, you can see both sides of the equation, which again, a very important skill for a magic player to develop. Um, you're going to benefit from widening your range and playing all styles of decks. So. It's my little my little rant on it. I, I think that it's doing a good job of phasing itself out, but just uh, I know we have players of all skill levels who watch our show and who who follow us. And you know, a little bit of advice that I would give to kind of the mid range like PTQ type player: start divorcing yourself from the idea of range and just get comfortable playing everything, and you're only going to benefit from it. Yeah, there's probably someone at your LGS that tries to make you feel bad for playing whatever deck you like to play when you're trying different stuff and you can just tell them just to stick it somewhere else. <laughs> At the end of the day, you're, you're going to level up faster than they will. Okay. We're both off the so- soapbox. KYT, the forum's yours. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I, I'm just excited. To, I, I love, even though we, we, in a lot of sports, uh, we play like, it's just so fun. Even though it's like different eras, different, uh, especially in in the in the popular sports, it's it's just way too exaggerated the arguments because they're on team sports, etc. But it's always an interesting topic when it comes to like who's the best. Like even you know in the in the local community, uh, like at least a couple of years ago, five years ago, people were interested in ranking like the top Canadian players even. Um, so it's, it's always a fun little exercise. Uh, and um, so moving on from that topic, one of the big things that uh, stories from the PT was in the semifinals where PV defeated Yam Wing Chun uh, in five games. And in the fifth game, uh, a deciding moment where Yam had PV at 11 with no blockers, with a has written in play. And he also had. Insignia Reflow, and he topped that Collective Defiance, giving him 11 damage. He just had to cast two spells to burn him and attack with the Hazret for 5 to give him exactly 11 to kill PV. Of course, uh, he moved to the combat step before casting the two sorceries, so he was not able to attack and deal him damage. So basically, he, he made a huge blunder and gave PV the win. And uh, this was a deciding win. And a lot of questions, we'll start with this, uh, starting from a different angle. A lot of questions from the nation asking uh, players like us what we would do uh, if this happened to us and we had maybe other games to play, or if this happened in game four, how would we mentally try to recover uh, to not tilt game five? Because a lot of people in our nation have said that like when they mess up, 
they completely screw up the rest of the tournament or the, the, the very next game, or when it's a non-game ending misplay, they just keep making more and more misplays. So how do you mentally reset? We'll start with you, Rob. What's your strategy? I mean, it, it's, it's very difficult, right? Cause you're kind of talking about tilt <laughs> in, in a sense. And, um, when you get to a point where, uh, I mean, a play like this would aggravate me more than mulling to four and hitting a no-lander uh, or, or hitting, like, the perfects and then just my deck giving me all garbage and I can't play and I, and I don't win. Having a misplay like this where I have the win and I just... It's not even that he didn't see the line. He just, like, got excited and uh, screwed up his order of operations, right? By, like making the wrong motion with his Hazaret when he should have just, like, cast Collector Defiance or Incendiary Floor or whatever it was uh, from his hand first and then got in for five. So I would have been definitely rattled. <laughs> and you need to very much practice getting yourself unrattled because this stuff is going to happen almost assuredly every tournament where you're going to be in-game and realize that you made a mistake that is very likely to to cost you the match, right? And if you let that get to you in-game and then for the rest of the tournament, there's just, like, no way you're ever going to do well at an event as large as a GP where you need to play 15 rounds, right? Or, like, nine on, on day one. So, like, you make an error in round three, you're basically dead because <laughs> you're going to be playing real bad magic for the rest of the day. So I, I usually just, um, you know, I'll, like, find my happy place, Take a deep breath, like just calm my nerves. Maybe like you go to the bathroom, just like clear your head, go for a walk, right? Just like ask to be excused for a second. Just like kind of calm down, level set yourself and just come back and just like very much try to forget that what just happened happened. And you're like, only look to the future now, right? It's like, okay, I know how to play good magic. I just need to play good magic for this, for the, for the next game or two or whatever it is. And then I'll have like X minutes to just like reflect on my bad play discipline myself for being an idiot and then being able to move into the next round, uh, you know, with, with a clear mind. But yeah, if you can't do that, I, I very much um, would spend time trying to figure out how you can calm those nerves and like get yourself out of a, a mindset where you're letting previous decisions affect your future decisions. That's just like not a good attitude to have in life altogether. And then once you're able to like separate that um, for yourself, you'll, you'll be able to handle just like a lot of stressful situations a lot better for sure. Brian, any, any advice from your end? Yeah, I think this is just kind of like, I don't mean this like insultingly. This is just kind of like growing up. Like if, if you don't think that you make a mistake in say 90% of your games of magic, then you're not very good at magic. Like you don't actually understand magic because it's such a hard game and we make so many mistakes. And the fact that this mistake was a little bigger and a little bit more obvious doesn't really change anything. I mean, this guy could have made 10 mistakes in the previous four games where he shouldn't even have been in this game. And he probably did make 10 mistakes in the previous four games because magic is that hard and there's that many decisions to be made. And there's, he left points all over the place and I leave points all over the place every time I play magic and you leave points every time you play magic. It's just the way it goes. And getting upset because the scale of this mistake is a little bit bigger 
it's just not the way you can operate. Like if you're, if you're tilted because it's a pro tour and you're like, I can't make this kind of mistake at a pro tour. Well, then you don't belong at a pro tour. You have to understand that these mistakes exist in all levels of the game. And part of growing as a player is acknowledging that you make these mistakes all the time and figuring out how to minimize them. And all you can do is go forward and try and minimize the mistake the next time. And let me tell you something. The next time this guy has a hazard in play, he's going to check his order of operations very carefully, and he's never going to make this mistake again. And the biggest thing I can say to people who are getting upset when they make things mistakes like this, it's just that everyone does it. Like, you're not stupid. You, you're not, you didn't fail. This has happened to every single person. I could list off a litany of boneheaded, obvious mistakes I've made at Pro Tours, GPs, FNMs. I, I mean... I remember a game against Seth Manfield at Pro Tour Battle for Zendikar. I was playing uh, Teamer Battle Rage, Become a Men's deck. I had um, Lethal. Uh, it was just clear Lethal. He was tapped out. I just had to play my land and get the landfall trigger for my creature. And I moved to attacks. And then I cast. I like showed him the Teamer Battle Rage and cast my Become a Men's. And he's like, all right, I go to one. And I looked at the fetch land in my hand. And I'm like, yep, I'm an idiot. And scooped in my cards. And then I won game three and won the match. Like, there's, there's, you're going to make mistakes like this many, many times throughout your career as a magic player. You, you just need to be able to move past it. There's, there's no magic words I can say to tell you that it's okay, except to just share that all of us have been through it. All of us do dumb things all the time. J- Jerry just won the last pro tour. He tried to grasp of darkness, a four or five creature and he, he cast the grass and then was like, Oh, okay. It's still alive. Uh, this just happens. It happens over and over and over. It happens to everyone. And if you're not able to move beyond that, you're not ready to be a great magic player. That's the truth. You have to get yourself in a place where you can step past these kind of mistakes and just play the next game of magic. Because whether you realize it or not, you made just as big a mistake in the game preceding this game and the game preceding that. You've made mistakes every time you've played magic for the last however many years. And this was just a little bit more obvious one. Um, so in the future, you'll be less likely to make it. And that's what you have to take away from it. <laughs> <laughs> oh I, I, yeah i just love that young wington's uh twitter name is actually all walking by <laughs> it makes me laugh um for for me uh yeah you brian i was just going to bring up the jerry point like he's one of my favorite players of all time and he, i just saw him make a completely like obvious punt on camera in, in one of his most important matches um, of his career, uh, leading to, to, to his PT win. And uh, I had to take some mental steps myself to, to make sure that I, was, I would stay on top of my game the most as possible and as long as possible during the long PTQ or, or long GP. Uh, basically, before I would try to visualize myself playing perfectly, but instead now I visualize myself making mistakes but being able to mentally recover from those mistakes as well and sometimes when you do feel embarrassed or or ashamed of making an obvious like game losing punt uh sometimes like rob said you might have to like find your happy place you might have to uh close your eyes a bit take a deep a few deep breaths or just walk around the venue just to mentally reset you might have to actually physically do something to feel like you mentally reset but uh, the main point, uh, you're right, Brian. You just have to know that mistakes happen. Even the best players do them, and not to let that hang on yourself for too long and just try to move on. And for me, what just looking at my career 
there's just always another tournament around the corner. There's always that GP. When I made mistakes for my PTQ top fours, or I just felt like this was it. This was my closest chance to make the PT, like the old style PTQs. I'm not going to be back here again. And sure enough, like less than a year later, I would win two of them. And I probably learned a lot from my mistakes then. So I don't think it's ever the end of the world. Of course, here it's different. Top four, very hard to get back to that stage, but you know, the lessons are still the same. Any last words on this, Rob? No, I, I think it's, yeah, it's just like something you got to deal with. Um, and uh, it's, it's tough. It's, <laughs> it's definitely tough when you first start out, that's, that's for sure. But I, you just have to not let it get to you, I guess. You'll get there eventually. And also, don't tilt off on your opponent when you get unlucky. I see lots of people do that, and it's just, it's rude, and it's not their fault that you have bad luck. <laughs> so you shouldn't make them feel bad for beating you. Anyways. <laughs> if, I, if I were to say one more thing, it would just be that you, me- you mentioned, like, the fact that it's a pro tour makes it different. That's part of the, what leads to a troubling attitude, I would say. Because it's still just magic, right? And if you're going to succeed at the Pro Tour, you have to treat it like a game of magic. And I promise you, if you've never been like in the feature match area and like, you know, very close to a Pro Tour top eight, it feels unlike any game of magic. It's very difficult to get into the mindset that, okay, all I'm doing is just playing magic. Everything's the same. But it's essential. You, you have to do it. You, you can't make this seem special because the second you fall away from your game, you're just putting in an unnecessary burden on yourself. You need to be playing magic. Like you've always played magic before, you know, you, you shuffle the same, you draw your seven cards, the same, everything's the same. You've done this a million times and don't forget that. Don't lose sight of it. Um, that being said, the, the pressure is immense. And I think he, he felt the pressure a little bit and, and the nerves and, it's tough. It, it was a really heartbreaking thing to see, but uh, you know, I, I just know that it, it could have been me a hundred percent. I've made so many bonehead mistakes in my life. It certainly could have been me in the same spot. Um, and I think he's handled it with grace. And I think that the community, you know, the community is really growing about a lot of things. Like this is something that I think maybe five years ago would have been a lot more brutal and a lot more just kind of like bashing the guy and i I mean i didn't see twitch chat i'm sure twitch chat was the cesspool it always is but if you look at like twitter and you know just people in general everyone seems super supportive he seems like he's taking it really well and i'm not sure that five years ago it would have been the exact same thing so that was really nice to see for sure twitch was surprisingly not that bad wow (laughs) first time for everything i guess i I think that it might have been that everyone was so excited that PV might be able to win that they weren't focusing on um, the fact that he kind of like might have thrown the game away because it wasn't like it wasn't clear shot that he was going to lose there once he made the misplay. It was just for sure that PV now, instead of having a 0% chance to win, has some non-zero chance. So like it actually did create for some insane magic there where it was like very tense because you're like, okay, what's going to happen now? Like, and then PV had to like play his turn in a way that's like maximizes his chance of being able to uh, get his opponent from eight to zero or whatever it was. Right. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was impressed at the level of maturity of Twitch. Not that it wasn't without its ridiculousness, but it was definitely better than we've seen it in other similar circumstances. <laughs> uh, 
And one last note on this is that, of course, on Reddit, that's another cesspool. Uh, they they had this topic like one of the worst misplays in PT history, and I completely forgot about this. Like uh, Eduardo Sajulik was now uh, living in uh, Montreal. I think he's now Captain Canada. Like he made what, according to to the Reddit community, one of the be- biggest misplays in Pro Tour history when. He was against Cape Chef, against Li Shitian, and they had this counter war going on over a Vidalian clique he was trying to resolve. He ended up winning the counter, but then missed, forgot the clique trigger when Li Shitian was actually holding the game-winning Cape Chef in his hand. So that's a huge, and I think that was game five, so that's a huge misplay. But look, he's moved on. He crushed it this past year. He's, become, he's captain Canada for the year. It's when you know all of us, a lot of us, including myself, expected Hain to be a huge favorite to, to repeat as captain, as he has been captain for most of the last couple of years. And it just goes to show that, uh, yeah, even even at the highest level, you can come back and, and Eduardo has had a phenomenal career uh, up to this point. It'll be interesting to see how he does at the World Magic Cup. Obviously, as Canadians, hope he crushes that. Um, we're going to go to uh, a little funny thing back to the Twitch chat and just talking to these guys in, in uh, my two fellow co-hosts. We're watching the stream at the same time. We're tilted, by the way. Uh, all of us were, by the way. Uh, Wing Chun, Yang Wing Chun were, was drawing his cards and revealing his top deck. And someone on the nation asked us, you know, would that be considered slow play? And would we call a judge on him. Rob, what, what do you think? If we're in the time round, I'd call a judge, but he's not really gaining any s- significant advantage other than just like wasting everyone's time uh, in the top eight since they're untimed rounds. But it was just, I think I said something in our, in our group chat that was like, if this guy wins, there is no justice. <laughs> like I couldn't bear to watch the finals if I had to sit there and watch him like feel the card ever so slowly from behind every time he draws for another uh, potential five games. So maybe, maybe it was the universe. Like that, that's why he misplayed. It was the universe just like gifting us 30 minutes because it was already quite late in North America and we wanted to see who, who actually took it down. <laughs> I'm not sure, but yeah, it was, it was driving me insane to watch. And if it was in a time round, I'd absolutely call a judge. I think it's unacceptable. I'm not sure if he does that always, or if it was just trolling uh, the viewers at home. <laughs> um, I, I wonder, I actually wondered if it was like a, a Chinese Asian inspired just because that's, at least when I grew up watching like Asian gambling movies, that's they would peel like that a lot, or they, they play a lot of da- dominoes in Asia, and they do that a lot. I really wonder if it's it's really influenced uh, because of that. Uh, Brian, what are your thoughts? Would you call a judge? Well, first, I want to say that I was going to say the exact same thing about it being Asian influence because when I learned to play Pagao poker, I was befriended by this elderly Asian woman. Um, this was like so many years ago, but we were like in the the high roller section. It was just me and her. And she was like, this is when, when you can still smoke in casinos. I don't know if you still can, but she's like chain smoking cigarettes. And she barely spoke any English, but she taught me, she go, always pull your cards very slowly. And I would like to the peel back just like he would. And that's how I still play Pi Guy to this day. Like she was awesome. We hung out all night. 
Um, but yeah, that, that was the first thing I thought of was, was that lady. Um, was it slow play? I don't know. I mean, like if it was a real issue, they probably would have done something. It was, it was very difficult to watch, very tilting to watch. Um, but you know, I talked about treating a game in the feature match area like any other. If this is how he always plays, good on him for still doing it. Like you, you can't change up your flow when you're in the feature match and you're on camera. You have to do things exactly the same. Um, I, I don't feel like it crossed the threshold to slow play. Um, what time? What time of the day were you watching the match, Brian? I watched it live. Yeah, if you didn't think that it was cross, crossing the threshold, he's wasting like an additional 10 to 20 seconds a turn. It was like 3.30 in the morning here. It was not the most optimal way to draw your cards. I will say that. And I was very tired by the end of the night, and I would have liked him to draw quicker. But uh, Is it worse than lands in front, do you think? Oh, yeah, for sure. For, yeah, for I, some, like, I agree. Oh, I think it's also worse than lands in front. Yeah, so it should be banned from feature match then. They should just ban it. So they ban they ban lands in front, so they should also just ban this in the feature match area. Anyways, I'm done. We we need good guys and villains. If this is but like I don't want like like Mark Long back, right? Or Mike Long, excuse me. I don't want him back. Like that's not the kind of villains I'm looking for. If this guy's gonna be the villain for for slow rolling his cards, that's a villain I could get behind. Like if, if we all just decide to like playfully hate him because he draws so slowly, that's cool. I'm in on that. Um, but and, and he had a good personality. He was like, he was very good on camera. And I think like, you know, that match reached a crescendo of tension, like an absolute all time, as far as magic goes, uh, you know, nerve wracking match. And his behavior probably had a lot to do with that, whether we liked it or not, his deliberate pacing, um, kind of lulled us all into this point where we were like, you know, we were trying to turn our head sideways and peek under the cards as, as he pulled them out. Um, it, it's just like, as much as I hated it, it probably made for good viewing. Um, and I, I don't think he crossed into slow play because, I mean, you're being watched by like a million judges that, at that point. If it was, obviously slow play is a very subjective thing. Um, but I think if it had been egregious enough they would have stepped in and i don't think it ever crossed that line it was annoying for sure but i'm over it it was it was a great match i think it's an all-time match um and he didn't he didn't actually ruin it it may have felt like it at the time but (laughs) i love it oh man i can't believe you got the asian thing too brian oh 100 i knew exactly what you were talking about yep um yeah growing up there's a lot of uh like Asia, like there's this reputation even like at work or or with my colleagues people always say like you know Asians are known for their gambling and and I don't I don't really know the reason why but definitely uh, lots of god of gamblers movies in Hong Kong that were extremely popular that I mean th- there's been some like rounders and stuff here in North America but it was a lot more popular especially in the 90s in in Hong Kong so I could see where he got that uh, little style from. So uh, we're, we're just about to wrap up this episode. Um, going through just one quick little thing, uh, just to get maybe Rob's thoughts on the Magic Online player rewards changes. Um, I didn't even know this thing actually existed, but uh, every month, Magic Online players who have opted into Magic Online player rewards, MOPR, can receive promo cards based on their participation events and their purchases in the Magic Online store. 
And to get them via event participation, uh, you basically get one if you play in a league during the period. Um, If you've played in five qualifying events, you'll get two more player reward packs. And then they reward you outside of event participation for store purchases. If you spent 20 bucks, I can't remember the last time I've spent money at the Magic Online store itself. You get a pack, but if you spend 40, you get two more packs. Rob, does this change anything for you? Does this add more value to your experience at all in terms of EV? Mr. Infinite KYT over here, the humble breaks. Yeah, so the reason that you didn't know that this is an existing program already is because none of the cards you get are worth any money for the most part. Um, I think it's been quite a while, actually, since you've gotten something. I'm just looking through my collection, all the random garbage I've collected by playing events and whatever over the years, and there's really nothing of note here at all. Back in the day when you had Mox qualifier bonus cards or whatever, like each season would come with a legit card, like Lion's Eye, Diamond, Force of Will, Rashad, and Port, something like that. It looks like they just want to like spread all that value into these rando uh, lottery ticket packs now, which is fine, considering the current program is like completely useless. This is just a strict upgrade, in my opinion, because at least you have the opportunity to get something that might be worth something instead of something that's definitely worth uh, nothing. Um, so yeah, it doesn't really like. I'm not going to play more events because of it, or less events because of it. And I'm definitely not going to start buying things from the store <laughs> because of it. But uh, it'll be nice, I guess. Like if these packs end up be worth being worth like two to five tickets or something like that at the end of the season. If you have or end of the month, sorry, I guess. Uh, if you have three of them, then yeah, whatever. It's like a free draft set for doing what you're already going to do. We'll see what they actually put in there. I, they haven't released the full uh, Carla, have they? Kumbaj Wishes is in there, right? That thing's like two tickets, it, I think. It's horrible. It's a horrible list. It's oh, just is it? Yeah, there's, there's no value here. This is a program that... neutral? Are we strict yeah, neutral? This is a program that has outlived its usefulness. I mean, like, if you were to actually get someone and sit them down and be like, what do you hope to accomplish with this program? I don't know that anyone would be able to give you... A, like, who is this for? We play a lot of Magic Online and care about it. None. It just doesn't affect us whatsoever. Is it for people who have just like casual engagement with the program? Well, I don't think so. Like getting a one-off card really isn't worth that much to people. I don't know. I, this feels like an outmoded way of giving like daily quests, right? Like this is um, a, a, a relic of Moto being ahead of its time and, and now behind its time. It's kind of a program that doesn't really work for its intended purpose. Um, it's a replacement for, you know, the Hearthstone-type handouts, and it's one that nobody really wants. I don't think they could... It's not even about, like, the cards, because I understand why you can't just, you know, basically print money and be giving away, you know, Rashad imports and things like that. So I can't fault them for the cards that they chose, but it's just like... They just kind of show up unannounced in your account right now. And the thing is, I don't know I've gotten a promo card until I go to build a deck and some weird art version of a card shows up in my deck. And I'm like, what is that? And where did it come from? It's like, oh, you they had a promo. You that explanation point that's like, you have the yeah, wrong yeah. version of this card in your deck. And you're like, I have the, a version of this card? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Update. 
Yeah, it, it's it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing right now. Um, I guess this is like a little better because people like gambling and they like the lottery. And I'll be sure to open my packs for this very slowly and just peel the card up and look at it. But uh, I I don't think this is really accomplishing anything at this point. And I guess they're just priced into it. They, if they took the program away, people would probably be in an uproar, even though nobody cares. Um, but yeah. This is just kind of a, a non-story as far as I'm concerned. And there wasn't, I mean, nobody really cared. Nobody got excited or angry about it. It was just like, oh, more crappy promos that I didn't even know I had. You can get Fatal Push. That's uh, like a couple tickets. Awesome. This is a strict upgrade then, because at least it has one card that's worth money. <laughs> it's <laughs> like a 1 in 64 of getting a Fatal Push. That's your best outcome. You can get Fatal Push and you can get Path, and then you can get literal pennies. <laughs> Cool. Uh, there's some weird selection in here. Yes, I don't, know, I don't know why some of these cards are here. Oh <laughs> uh, man. Yep. People are really short on their fortune's favor. Thanks, Watsy. <laughs> All right. I'll wrap up the show. I just wanted to mention that I was uh, thanks to chat for correcting the mistake of uh, what Yamun Chan had. I, w- I was just reading. The Watsi coverage again, um, where it said he he had he was holding flow, but top deck defiance, but it was the other way around. In reality, I remember he actually had defiance and drew to flow. And shouts to Doug for being in the chat and also talking about in Baccarat how people peel the size of the cards uh, really carefully because uh, just like whether it's a nine or an eight, like they would just go for how many pips are on this side to, to really. I hope if it's a nine or eight and it would slow peel that way. That's very also popular game amongst Asians for whatever reason. I still don't know yet. Um, shouts to our first strike producers, Jonathan Good, Kyle Smirchik, Derek Pite, Adrian Murchison, Isaiah Carrero, as well as there are other ones that largely want, wish to remain unnamed, but your support means the world to us and all the first strike nation, everyone inside there. We're getting more members. We're 60 members strong. And it's kind of insane to me. It's not surprising. I think we have thousands of listeners and just people are slowly buying in, especially with Brian killing it with either cyborg, uh, standard tech or is draft tech with Robin Vince, like fine tuning it. But Brian, you're the brain, brain trust for a lot of these things. So shouts to you for that, especially uh, even though you're shaking your head. Despite me raining, raining the praise tonight on you. And thank you to all the listeners. If you like this episode, please give a, a thumbs up. And uh, actually, let, let us know. Leave in the comments, YouTube comments, what you will be playing this weekend in your next standard tournament. Um, any last words from you guys? I am going to post all of the stupid decks I'm testing for the mocks in the Patreon. So if you want to follow along, Join and you'll see that. And I'm sure Brian will continue his brewing bonanza <laughs> tuning tuning decks as the week goes. Um, I'm not. I don't have a lot of big MTG events coming up other than that, so I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing uh, after that standard event. But it'll probably be just a bunch of drafts because people don't know how good this blue red deck is still. And I keep winning with it. <laughs> yeah, apparently Brian, we didn't get the attention. It- it deserved. It didn't get the attention it deserved at the PT. Uh, it could be that it was harder to draft at the PT. I mean, with, with better card evaluation, I could certainly see some key pieces getting snatched up a little early. 
Um, or people don't know about it. That's totally possible. I mean, look, it's not like everyone in the world is smart enough to listen to us, right? Like some people still aren't listening to the show. There's nothing we can do about that. Eventually, they'll all be here. But for now, we only have the brightest and best of the magic community listening every week. Um, you know, as the other dregs of, the, of society fill in, then they'll have the information too. And everyone will be drafting blue-red. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I think I'm playing uh, the SCG open this weekend um in syracuse and that's modern so uh right now i would play grixis death shadow just because i'm i've played a lot with it i'm i'm good with it i'm comfortable with it uh i want to explore eldrazi tron however because i have some unique constraints on me for this tournament i'm having surgery tomorrow uh on my shoulder and so i don't i i, I know i won't be able to move my left arm at the tournament so I can't, I don't know what my shuffling is going to look like. Like, I think I may have to rely on a judge for shuffling. Are you picking your deck for the SG Open based on the based fact on that effects. minimal shuffling? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm kind of like priced into it. Like, I don't think I can call a judge every single turn of the, like, literally with that shadow, every single turn of the game, I would have to call a judge. So I've just been thinking about the logistics and like my arm's going to be in a sling. So it'll be like here and maybe I can kind of do like a leaning shuffle or something, but... I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if it's even plausible. Or, you know, I could also just die on the operating table tomorrow, and then I don't have to worry about it. So that's another option, too. Can't you just um, riffle if you can't move your shoulders? I don't know. I, I, I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know, like... You need to practice, Brian. You need to practice riffle shuffling without moving your upper arms. I, I, guess I feel my, like I can do it. I can do it. You can do it. I, I feel like I can, too. I feel like I can, but I want to see. And it could also just be like I'm in way too much pain, and I'm dramatically underestimating, like... My capabilities. Either way, I'm going to be on a lot of painkillers at the tournament, so don't expect a good performance from me. I'll probably do very poorly and be very confused, but I'm going to play anyway because I want to get out there. Uh, if you're going to be at the tournament, feel free to come up, say hi. And I, I know we definitely have some Northeast first strikers, so you can pop in and just don't just don't pat me on the shoulder when you come say hi. That's all. We maybe expect a tournament report from you. That's like that guy that did mushrooms at the SCG Open one time. It could be very similar, except. <laughs> He won, and I, I don't. I don't foresee myself like, especially if I play something like Bricks of Death Shadow, which has like these super intricate decisions every turn. I don't foresee myself winning. Like I'm just. If you win, though, if you win, you and you're and you're definitely hopped up on painkillers to the point where you're like feeling real good. You need to write your tournament report immediately after the tournament finishes. Well, I think fortunately I'll be on painkillers for quite some time going forward until my shoulder heals. So I'll just be oh, a, fantastic. Yeah, I'll be in a total haze for like the next month. So you guys should look forward to next week's episode where I'm just like staring at the ceiling the whole time and not really engaged with the podcast. Uh, yeah, but we'll see how it goes. It, it should be an interesting event. All righty for uh, Ryan, Rob and myself. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for the support. Later, guys.